welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Stephen Walt, Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. Steve, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here. I wanted to get your input um, first on the Ukraine war um, and what you think of the recent nuclear escalations on the part of Vladimir Putin. Um, what's he trying to signal and how should it factor into how the United States approaches the war? Right. Well, uh, just to be clear, this is not a nuclear escalation in the sense that he hasn't used a nuclear weapon, but he has, on a number of occasions, going back to the very beginning of the war, hinted that this was something that might occur. Uh, it wasn't, I think, uh, an indication of where he wanted to go. Uh, but he was uh, trying to signal that depending on how the war went and depending on what the responses of other countries were, that was an option that Russia had. And of course, that's been true all along. It's an option any nuclear uh, nuclear armed state has. Um, I think what he's been conveying in all of this, uh, given that the war has gone as badly as it has from a Russian perspective, is that there are limits uh, to uh, Russian forbearance uh, depending on exactly how things are going uh, uh, going forward. Um, and I think what he is signaling is sort of two things. One is that the war remains a vital interest for Russia. This was not something they did uh, on a whim uh, for trivial reasons. Uh, we, we can argue that they were uh, paranoid. Uh, we can certainly argue that they miscalculated very, very badly. And of course, none of that justifies uh, what Russia has done. Uh, but he's signaling that this is something that he and the Russian elite care very deeply about and have been willing to uh, run some considerable risks and obviously, um, you know, uh, suffer considerable costs uh, to try and succeed. The second message is sending is that if this goes really badly for Russia, if they are facing a catastrophic defeat, uh, that there's a possibility they would do more. Uh, and that's, again, not surprising because countries do tend to escalate uh, if they're in a war that they care about and where they're losing. Uh, when the United States was not winning in Vietnam, uh, Nixon and Kissinger chose to escalate the war by invading Cambodia. Uh, invading another country. We uh, increased the amount of bombing we did at various stages of the war to try and uh, lead to victory. So for Russia to threaten escalation is not an unusual thing for a country that wants to win and hasn't been able to find a way to win. What makes it particularly scary, of course, is the hint that nuclear weapons might be involved. There has been, I think, uh, a quite substantial nuclear taboo, uh, the idea that these weapons really should not be used except in uh, defense uh, as, you know, threats of retaliation, whatever. And for him to hint that this might be something he would initiate in certain circumstances um, is something I think one has to take seriously. Uh, that that if uh, they're facing a possible regime collapse, collapse of their army, a complete and humiliating defeat, and they regard this as an existential danger, uh, then I think we have to uh, recognize the reasonable probability that they would see the only way to reverse their fortunes and halt what was happening would be either to actively threaten the use of a nuclear weapon or to actually go ahead and do so. Uh, not probably against NATO, not uh, certainly directly against the United States at first, but initially in Ukraine, uh, partly to try and correct the military situation, but also as a, a sort of wake-up call 
to Ukraine supporters that this could get really ugly uh, if things continued in the hope that that would lead uh, the West to uh, either restrain the Ukrainians or to throttle back on our own ambitions or to begin serious negotiations for a ceasefire. There's lots of different possibilities here. Um, but I, I do not dismiss the probability of uh, nuclear use in certain circumstances, and I think that should worry us all greatly. That kind of leads me to uh, another question, which is what U.S. objectives are. Are, are we in this to drain Russia? or to liberate Ukraine, or, or what? What do you think the objective is? Uh, I think uh, we haven't been as clear as we might have been on that. There's certainly been some indications that the Biden administration sees this as an opportunity, uh, not just to help uh, Ukraine uh, regain its territory, obviously retain its independence, uh, but also as an opportunity to inflict a decisive defeat on Russia. There was the statement by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, relatively early on that our goal was to, you know, weaken Russia to the point that it could not do something like this again. Um, and however uh, desirable that objective might uh, might be in the abstract, you can obviously imagine how that. Uh, was taken in Moscow, uh, absolutely reaffirming their view uh, that the United States has in fact been systematically trying to weaken Russia for a long time, uh, systematically trying to box it in by expanding NATO, uh, doing various things to weaken and undermine its position in the world. Even if one rejects that view, you can understand why they might uh, see it that way. And you could certainly understand how they would interpret a statement by Austin that our goal was to weaken Russia over the long term, etc., as a sign that we were effectively trying to drive them from, say, the ranks of the major powers, render them a second class uh, state on, on the world stage. And, um, and so I think the Biden administration has been somewhat um, ambiguous in laying out what their real objectives uh, are. And of course, this is, uh, you know, obviously a tricky problem. We may get into it later, but, uh, you know, when when you're in the early phases of a conflict, and unfortunately we may still be uh, at that phase, there's very little incentive to suggest any willingness to compromise, any willingness to suggest... Uh, get anything less than victory. Certainly the Ukrainians would like to get all of their territory back. And again, I think most of Ukraine's supporters, and I would include myself uh, there, would uh, love to see that happen if there were a way to do it safely and at an acceptable cost. Um, the question becomes, you know, if that proves not something you can do at an acceptable cost or without running in enormous risks, do you start considering uh, other possibilities, possibilities of compromise? Um, and you know, in that sense, uh, we're not willing to talk about that yet. Certainly, Ukraine doesn't want to talk about it. If you even bring it up in the Western discussions, you're usually immediately pilloried as a shill for Moscow and an apologist for Putin. Um, um, but you know, realistically speaking, that may in fact be where this conflict ultimately ends, that neither side can win a truly decisive victory. Russia doesn't get what it wants. Ukraine doesn't get everything it wants. We don't get everything uh, what it wants. Uh, but we're not, I think, anywhere close to that point yet. You recently wrote a column in Foreign Policy about why wars are easy to start but hard to end, and you just went into some of that. And I am seeing many analysts um, suggest that the most likely scenario here is that the conflict kind of drags out for a long time and persists as a geopolitical flashpoint. I get the sense that you agree with that, but is there anything that the United States can do to help make this or that off-ramp 
appear more attractive and, and put a halt to hostilities? Um, you know, in theory, yes, uh, the United States could be having, you know, sort of private conversations with the Ukrainians about what uh, realistic goals are. We certainly can have uh, back channel or even direct conversations with the Russians. So in, in theory, if the American objective was to end the war as quickly as possible, there are things we could start to start to do. But I think realistically speaking, uh, that's not likely to happen. Um, I, I think certainly there's no uh, there's no support for that in Kiev uh, now. Uh, I think that it would be politically untenable in the United States for uh, the Biden administration to be seen as putting pressure on uh, Kiev to cut a deal or, or anything like that. Uh, I don't see any signs on, uh, in Moscow that they want to compromise, that they're uh, you know, running up the white flag or looking for uh, for some kind of, uh, you know, way, face-saving way out. So I think right now, uh, both sides are actually pretty significantly dug in. And it will only be if either one side or the other uh, achieves some kind of, you know, decisive uh, breakthrough. Uh, might happen. Uh, I think it's more likely that that happens for the Ukrainians than for the Russians. Um, but I don't think that's the most likely outcome. So therefore, the alternative is that eventually the two sides... You know, sort of realize that they're not going to get everything they want um, and I, that the stalemate is likely to continue, that the cost will continue to mount. And at that point, uh, you know, you get both sides interested in figuring out if there's a way to bring it to an end. Uh, that in itself is not going to be easy. Figuring out what sort of uh, a peace arrangement, what sort of even ceasefire uh, could could be implemented that both sides would both abide by, they would trust the other side to abide by, etc. That's not going to be easy to do because there's no uh, trust at all now between uh, the two warring parties for uh, completely understandable reasons. So, you know, for those of us who have thought from the very beginning that the goal was to try and end this as quickly as possible, uh, you still have to recognize that at this stage in the conflict, that's not going to be easy and it probably won't happen anytime soon. I wonder if you can say something about the Russian perspective. Uh, what do you think Putin hopes to achieve? And do you have anything to say about his decision making here? What does it tell us about international politics that he can miscalculate uh, this severely and face steep, steep costs for wanting to go uh, uh, commit this aggression? So, so let me start with, start with that. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that Russian decision making from the very beginning has been uh, deeply flawed. Um, they were overconfident about how easy it was going to be to defeat the Ukrainians. I think they underestimated the rapidity and vigor of the Western response, not just the American response, uh, but also the response of, of Western Europe. I, I think they thought uh, that the Europeans wouldn't do very much, you know, put a few sanctions on and leave it at that. I think the Swedish had finished decisions to, to join NATO uh, were not something uh, they expected at all. So, you know, at each stage, uh, there have been really significant uh, miscalculations uh, by, uh, by Russia and by Putin in particular. Um, what that says, I mean, uh, you know, here we're now speculating, but I don't, do think it's certainly consistent with the idea that in autocratic systems, uh, and Russia is a good illustration of this, um, information often doesn't flow particularly well to the top that Putin was not getting accurate information about how good his army was. Uh, he didn't understand uh, the vigor of Ukrainian nationalism, possibly because he has this 
uh, somewhat romantic belief that, you know, Ukrainians and Russians are brothers at heart and, and uh, the Ukrainians had just been misled into uh, wanting to be independent in, in various ways. Uh, it's possible that as a result of COVID, he was even more isolated and only listening to a small group of people who, of course, uh, agreed with him. And it is a political system where, you know, you have to have a considerable, I think, amount of bravery to say, you know, Vladimir, I think you've got this one all wrong. Uh, you really need to go in a different direction. I don't think that's impossible to do, but it's not necessarily uh, the best career move uh, in the Kremlin uh, these days. You add all that together and you get the kind of things uh, that we've seen happening uh, in, in Russian decision making. Uh, what that does to the, the Russian worldview, though, it's not obvious to me that that um, diminishes the problem that we face. First of all, you do worry more about, you know, whether or not they'd be willing to run escalatory risks. Um, and you also uh, worry that the Russian view that uh, the United States and its allies have been systematically doing things over 25 or 30 years that showed a certain disregard for Russian interests, Russian security concerns, uh, not just in Ukraine, but in other areas as well, that we basically weren't taking them seriously as a, a great power. Uh, nothing uh, that has happened since they invaded, I think, is going to have undermined or diminished uh, that view. And that is worrisome because, of course, you, you know, you worry about cornering a nuclear armed power and convincing them that, you know, down one road is their demise as a major global force. And down the other road is maybe uh, escalation that can uh, possibly rescue uh, the situation. Um, and, you know, you sort of don't want to give them that choice. You don't want them to be facing uh, that stark uh, set of alternatives. Um, and that then raises the question of, well, what are their war aims at this point? Um, you know, given that they weren't able to win quickly, uh, as I think they had initially hoped. Um, I think that uh, the most likely uh, situation is that uh, Putin would like to get out of this with, by being able to claim some set of successes, that he got something for a war that clearly has cost more than they anticipated, that's going to have terrible long-term consequences uh, for Russia as well. And so his hope is that uh, the Russian army can hang on to most of what they currently have, maybe not all of it, but most of what they currently have. Uh, we get a particularly cold winter in uh, the rest of Europe. So the Europeans uh, start uh, suffering, start wondering why uh, their apartments are so cold. Uh, industries have trouble producing if they're very energy dependent. Pop popular support in, or, I'm sorry, in Europe begins to flag. Divisions emerge between the people who are all in uh, supporting Ukraine, like Poland and the Baltic states and other European countries that are less resolved. And even here in the United States, people begin to go, you know, how long is this going to go on? How many more billions of dollars of weapons are we going to be sending to Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he has to essentially play a long game that tries to depend on, on a stalemate. Um, then, and at some point, maybe next year, then serious discussions uh, for a settlement that allows him not to claim a victory, but at least something, uh, uh, perhaps continued control of Crimea, some, uh, some uh, you know, uh, control and possibly a, an agreement for ceding parts of the Donbass uh, to Russia. Um, and then maybe some kind of assurances about what Ukraine's role or relationship 
to the West and to NATO and the EU is going to be for some period of time. I have no idea if that uh, is a feasible outcome here, but it seems to me if I were in his shoes, that's the most I could hope for at, at this point. Uh, and it's not at all uh, obvious that Ukraine would ever agree. It's not obvious that uh, American support will flag enough to make that a realistic possibility uh, anytime soon. And most importantly, it's not obvious to me that that solution would last, would hold. Um, more than, you know, a year or two before one side or the other decided they wanted to reopen the, the conflict and try for a better deal. You mentioned NATO, and in a piece last month, you identified uh, a number of possible futures for NATO. Um, can you talk first a bit about how the purpose, the kind of raison d'etre of NATO has morphed over the years, and it's kind of a military alliance in search of an objective? What's going on there? You know, this has been an issue that, you know, has come up really ever since the end of the uh, Soviet Union, um, that you know, NATO was a, a defensive alliance originally formed to protect Western Europe uh, against the possibility of, of Soviet expansion. It had some other purposes as well. We all know the you know, famous line that was to keep the Russians out, the Americans in and the Germans down. Um, uh, but, uh, but once the Soviet Union was gone, then there was a real question about what NATO's purpose was, given that you no longer had to worry about uh, Soviet armies crossing the uh, the border and heading uh, heading for the channel. Um, and NATO has, I think, wrestled with this for the, ever since, uh, with some people believing uh, that it you know, no longer needed to exist, other people believing it was still a, an excellent vehicle for retaining American influence in Europe, uh, people believing it was still a useful insurance policy, way of sort of making sure things in Europe remained quiet. Uh, and then finally, those who I think saw it as uh, an instrument that could be used not just in Europe, but elsewhere. The debate on whether or not NATO should really take on uh, missions out of area. And the one case where that happened uh, most obviously uh, was Afghanistan, where there was a NATO mission after the American ouster of the uh, Taliban to try and essentially stabilize the country and, you know, quote unquote, uh, nation build. You could also argue that NATO uh, had something to do with the intervention in Libya, although it was not an all NATO operation. It was the United States plus several of its uh, NATO allies as well. Um, and the central problem is that most of these out of area missions have not gone particularly well. Uh, NATO has not proven to be an effective instrument for advancing, say, American foreign policy goals in places like Iraq or Libya or Afghanistan uh, and even the Balkans, which you might think of as NATO's biggest success story uh, in the post-war period, uh, is a, a mixed record uh, at best. Um, if you look at the condition uh, there, if you look at how the Kosovo War was fought, it was not a banner uh, moment for, for NATO as well. So the question uh, still arises, you know, what's NATO for at this point and what uh, should its composition, its purpose, uh, the distribution of burdens within the alliance be going forward? Now, the war in Ukraine, of course, has brought all of these issues to the fore yet again. And in, on one hand, you could argue that, well, this has given NATO a new lease on life. It's shown that 
security problems are still very serious in Europe, um, that you know, a big war can actually happen. Uh, and the fact that Sweden and Finland want to join is a sign of NATO's relevance. Uh, you could even get the argument that if only Ukraine had been let in sooner, this would never have happened, right, etc. Um, but I think the real conclusion, particularly over the longer term, is that um, it's a call for NATO to really reconsider not necessarily its existence, but the way in which it's uh, organized, and in particular, the way in which burdens are distributed in it. Because the other thing the Ukraine war has taught us, I think in spades, is that the Russian military threat to Europe is quite modest. Um, I always thought it was exaggerated, and we're now seeing just how incompetent the Russian military uh, really is. So if you look at the economic and military assets that Europe controls, not counting the United States and the military potential that exists there, uh, there's no question that Europeans can largely handle most of their security concerns about Russia without a lot of American help, without the United States having to be uh, the first responder. Europe has at least three times the population. Its uh, combined economies are at least 10 times that of Russia, and Russia's is going to be shrinking. Um, European military spending each year is three to four times greater than that of Russia as well. Now, the Europeans don't spend it very well. They don't get a lot of military capability for it. But of course, we're now seeing that the Russians haven't been spending it very well uh, either. Um, so I was laying out in this article a number of different options. You know, do you want NATO to be the arm of a sort of global democracy movement and try and spread democracy around the world, which is something the Biden administration sometimes hints at or its rhetoric hints at? And I suggest that's not a very good idea. To the extent that NATO has tried to do that in the past, it hasn't succeeded. Um, that's not likely, uh, not likely to work. Um, you could imagine it being a sort of an alliance that instead of focusing on Russia, is now going to focus on China. China's the big, uh, you know, peer competitor for the United States. So let's repurpose NATO for that uh, mission. And there, I, I think NATO is simply not going to play much of a military uh, role, maybe not even much of an economic role in trying to deal with a, a rising China. Uh, in fact, if Europeans get serious about rearmament, they're going to be focusing on European security. They're not going to be focusing on developing uh, a Navy that can go to the Pacific, air forces that can go to the Pacific, Marines that are you know, ready to go to the Pacific. So they're not going to help us there. And so my argument in the piece was that what NATO should be gradually moving toward over the next five to 10 years is a new division of labor, one in which Europeans are primarily responsible for their own security. They are no longer counting on the United States to be there in the first 24 hours. And the United States is essentially the ally of last resort. If they really get in trouble, yes, then the United States comes to their aid. Meanwhile, the United States focuses its attention elsewhere where it's uh, security concerns are substantially greater and are likely to be increasing uh, over time. Uh, this should be done cooperatively. This should not be a, a sort of Trumpian act of rancor where we, we uh, ditch the Europeans because we're mad at them or any, anything like that. But it's a very different model of NATO than the one we've had uh, in the past. And it's one where Americans have to recognize they are not going to run the alliance in quite the same way that they have uh, in the past. Uh, whether or not we actually head in that direction, I think, is going to be determined by a lot of things, uh, partly the outcome of the war in Ukraine, but also um, you know, what continues to evolve between the United States, China and Europe and China as well.
Yeah, the theater that you suggest uh, the United States focus on instead of Europe is is Asia. Um, so I want to move to China and ask you a few questions about that. The Biden administration recently issued new export controls for China, and this continues pretty steep trade restrictions carried over from the Trump administration. Is this the right approach? I feel like the trade war, such as it is, isn't being waged with specific terms in mind that could relieve the restrictions if China were sufficiently compelled. But they're just tied to kind of vague prerogatives uh, under the banner of competition or democracy versus autocracy. And I think we can get to the point, if we're not there already, where kind of constant economic warfare and protectionism is the norm without bringing any kind of strategic results that we might want. Can you say something about the economic approach here? Yeah. Um, well, I think that there is a perfectly legitimate case for restricting certain access to certain types of technology that have direct military applications and where you can really uh, worry about uh, American security being jeopardized if certain capabilities are, are permitted. Uh, that's been true for a long time. Uh, it's not a particularly controversial. And to take a more controversial case, the case of Huawei, uh, which was you know, sanctioned in a variety of ways by the Trump administration, and which has continued. Um, one could, I think, raise legitimate security concerns about you know, the possible vulnerabilities created if Huawei 5G technology became the digital architecture in a lot of different countries, including in the United States. There were enough concerns about what might be embedded in that technology, what it might uh, provide if China wanted to interfere, that you could make a legitimate case, say, for barring Huawei 5G from the United States itself. You could even raise some questions with other countries about whether or not if they used Huawei 5G and had access to American secrets, that that might create a vulnerability uh, as well. Where I, it seems to me the Trump administration went a bridge too far and where I think we're continuing this is to go beyond the rather narrow national security concerns or espionage concerns and say that actually we want to destroy Huawei as a commercial rival. Um, that we're waging economic warfare here. Uh, we are engaged in essentially a beggar thy neighbor policy where we're going to cut them off from in, uh, inputs, from the chips that they need in order to make their products, um, in order to essentially weaken them as a commercial enterprise, even if they don't pose particular national security concerns. We're just going to destroy the company. And it's worth noting, by the way, that this is generally inconsistent with how we've normally approached trade policy, where beggar thy neighbor policies of this court were a benefit for us, like a benefit for our digital companies is only reached by hurting somebody else's digital companies uh, directly. This is contrary to the, how the World Trade Organization is supposed to run. It's contrary to how uh, basic trade theory is supposed to run. That appears to be essentially the model now that the Biden administration has uh, adopted. They are not just going after specific uh, national security concerns, as near as I can tell. They have those there, too. And that, as I said, I think are, are more legitimate. But I think the long term uh, goal here is simply to make sure China is not able to compete with the United States at the so-called commanding heights of digital and semiconductor technology. This has some military applications, but it also has uh, uh, significant economic 
implications. And I think one thing that we should at least bear in mind is that this is going to be costly for the United States. It's not cost-free to deny uh, Chinese companies the ability to compete on commercial applications. Uh, for them to be able to develop new products that might be cheaper than the equivalent products in the United States. Uh, maybe develop products that are actually better than the products we've... Uh, we're basically trying to make that as difficult as possible. Uh, we are, uh, in a sense, engaging in a uh, coercive uh, economic campaign to weaken the Chinese economy, or at least weaken certain sectors of it. And that's going to have costs on the United States uh, as well. The other thing that I'm still thinking about, um, and I haven't reached a firm conclusion yet, is that this exercise of economic power uh, may be a sort of short-term success, but a long-term uh, problem for us. Uh, a long-term problem in two senses. Of course, it gives China an enormous incentive uh, to become more autonomous to devote even more resources to developing the capability to build these chips so it doesn't have to rely upon outside suppliers. So we might wake up in 15 years and discover that we actually gave them the incentive uh, to beat us at this in ways they might not have uh, tried to do. You know, Think of how we responded to Sputnik in 1957. Now, they may not be able to do it. It may be uh, beyond their, their reach, but at least we ought to think through that possibility. The second possibility, of course, is that we're using our current dominant position, and I might add the same way we use our position in the world financial system, uh, to put enormous pressure on other countries. And other states may worry about that too, right? Uh, that if the United States is willing to do this to China, what would we be willing to do to other countries? Uh, I think there's a tendency in the United States to assume that, you know, we're the good guys, we're on the side of the angels. And therefore, when we use power for a good purpose, most of the world agrees with us. And I do worry a little bit over the long term that this, again, gives more countries incentives not to be as dependent on the United States as they currently are and to look for alternatives, looks for, look for ways to not have to depend on Washington's goodwill over time. Um, so I, I, think, I think I understand what the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, I don't think they've necessarily fully considered what some of the downsides may be. How do you think we can avoid some of the political and strategic mistakes of the Cold War as, as we look at China policy? In the Cold War, we had this enemy. We had to exaggerate the threat. We lost sight of our strategic priorities at many points. We built up bureaucracies that then became ends in themselves, alliances we did that with too. Uh, and that ended up kind of undermining um, our interests. What part of our approach to China should seek to soften their hard edges and maybe protect against our own instead of rile them up? Um, that's, that's a great question. And I think, unfortunately, the history of the Cold War and the nature of the American political system makes it really hard to do that. It makes it really hard for us uh, not to turn um, significant rivalries, serious competition, whatever label you want to put on it, not to turn that into a crusade, not to turn that into a zero-sum you know, struggle to the death uh, where either one side or the other has to emerge triumphant. 
Uh, I think, you know, our model is very much the, the Cold War, that we had this competition, we ran it for 40 or 50 years, uh, we fought a bunch of uh, stupid wars in the process. Uh, fortunately, uh, we won in the end, the Soviet Union collapsed and we managed to do all this without blowing up the world, that was all good. Um, and that's the model here. Uh, that's what we're hoping happens, that eventually somehow China, you know, changes course or uh, falls by the wayside, we emerge, uh, you know, triumphant once again. And the 21st century, like the 20th century, is an, another American century. Um, I, I think it's really hard to not allow a competition like that to spin out of control for all of the reasons you mentioned. I'll just throw in a couple of more. I mean, the United States is, uh, in fact, an extremely secure country. Uh, particularly compared to others historically. Uh, nobody's going to invade the United States uh, unless there's en uh, you know, enormous miscalculation somewhere, uh, as might happen if, a war, if the war in Ukraine escalates. No one's going to attack the United States directly with, you know, uh, with nuclear weapons. We have our own deterrent, etc. Um, the American economy is still quite diverse, quite robust, uh, et cetera. So life is not perfect. It's not that bad things never happen here, but we're really in great shape and you know, still no great power enemies nearby, et cetera. No border disputes of any magnitude, et cetera. We're in, we're in remarkably good shape. Given that, if you're trying to have an ambitious foreign policy, run the world, intervene in lots of other places, counter a rising country like China, you really have to rev the American people up. Um, most of them don't care very much about foreign policy. They don't pay a lot of attention to it. To get them to go along with this requires a certain amount of threat inflation. You have to make the alternatives seem horrible and the competition e easy to win. So there's, I think, a lot of built-in distortion in the way in which we tend, uh, we tend to approach these things. And that makes it very hard to run a sort of sensible, balanced, uh, nuanced foreign policy. Um, Here's, you know, just a couple of other points. We have to recognize that there's limits, I think, to what we can accomplish in our relationship, uh, in our, handling our relationship with China. Uh, the fact is, these are two uh, large countries with, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, we're a long way from each other. Uh, both sides have, uh, you know, big and increasingly uh, diverse economies. What all that means is, in a sense, neither one can pose a truly existential threat to the other. China is not gonna sail across the Pacific and invade California, and if it did, it would fail. We're not gonna sail across the Pacific and invade Shanghai and drive to Beijing. That's not gonna happen. Uh, either. We're not going to uh, completely crush the Chinese economy and uh, allow them or force them to, you know, run up the white flag as well. Um, they're not going to uh, turn the United States into a one-party communist regime. We're not going to be able to turn it into a democracy uh, anytime soon. So there are enormous limits to what either can hope to do to the other. We can hope to nudge them in certain ways towards policies that we regard as more congenial, and they're going to try to do the same to us. That's the normal nature of great power uh, diplomacy. What that means is that uh, the principal challenge, it seems to me, we face, and, and American policymakers acknowledge this rhetorically but haven't figured out how to do it, is uh, try to maximize the number of areas where we actually can work with the Chinese to mutual benefit, 
and recognize that there are going to be some areas where that's not going to be the case, where we are uh, genuinely uh, going to be competing in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, it is obvious that we ought to be cooperating with the Chinese as much as possible on the issue of climate change. Because if we get that one wrong, uh, you know, the consequences for the United States are far greater than any foreign policy defeat you could point to. Um, so that's one. I think uh, trying to manage jointly our economic relationship uh, so that it's mutually beneficial uh, is something else we want to do. And that, that that's not easy either, but it's something that's very uh, important uh, as well. Looking for areas where we can both be better off by mutually adjusting our policies, whether it's uh, in arms control or in trade relations or whatever that, it seems to me, is very much in our, in our benefit as well. And finally, and this is harder, um, in those areas where we're not going to be able to agree, uh, you know, Taiwan being a, a good example, trying to find ways that when we're competing and we're not able to compromise, nonetheless, those don't become opportunities where each side begins to ratchet things up. Um, my colleague Danny Roderick and I have, have written an article where we say you know, what you need to have is independent but well-calibrated responses. When we take independent action to defend our interests, we do enough to protect ourselves, but we don't use it as an excuse to then try and punish them more, try and hurt them, try and gain a long-term advantage. Um, and if there were a better norm, that each side behaved with a certain de degree of restraint, even when competing with one another, that of course then facilitates compromise on other areas, and in some cases, actually, uh, like climate change, uh, joint uh, cooperation. Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm suggesting an approach to managing Sino-American relations that assumes a great deal of maturity, uh, a great deal of sort of reason, calmness, uh, not uh, jingoism, not emotion, etc. And that's often a scarce commodity. And to make things even worse, of course, it's a scarce commodity in China as well, where nationalism, where a certain resentment of the United States, where uh, a desire to recover from you know, a century or more of humiliation, et cetera, is pretty deeply rooted as well. So this is going to be a major challenge, not just for the next year or two, but for the next 20 or 30. Yes, that piece, uh, that, uh, that work with Danny Roderick that you were referencing, um, you guys basically advise that the United States and China put their issues into separate categories and that'll allow some flexibility, allow for some cooperation and then some, some issues that neither state wants to compromise on. Um, you also say in that piece that, you know, the United States and China have long-term incentives for peace. They do not want to clash because it would be so mutually devastating. At the same time, there's kind of short-term political incentives that lean towards conflict. I know I'm kind of repeating my last question here, but there must be something that we can insert into our strategy to encourage a bit more comp uh, com cooperation and kind of um, ease the tension somewhat. Um, you'd think so, but I don't see many signs of that really on either side. I mean, you know, confronting China has now become one of the few issues upon you know, where Republicans and Democrats agree, where you actually do have, still have a, a, a 
pretty strong bipartisan uh, consensus. And you have lots of groups in the United States who want to push that for uh, either because they genuinely believe it or because it's in their interest uh, to, to push, you know, a, a heightened competition. And you have the parallels happening on the Chinese side as well, where there's very, I think, very little appetite for compromise uh, and where you have, you know, a, a party Congress coming up where you know, Xi Jinping wants to be anointed for his third term and is announcing that he wants to suddenly start cutting deals with the United States is not probably uh, part of his uh, part of his agenda for that uh, for that particular meeting uh, as well. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, what often happens, I think, in great power relations is um, that, you know, there are there are moments of clarity. Um, you know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, you know, which has been very much in the news lately uh, in light of what's happening in Ukraine. Cuban Missile Crisis was, you know, this very scary moment in relations with the Soviet Union. And in the aftermath of it, both the Kennedy administration and the Soviet government under Khrushchev and then Brezhnev uh, understood it was time to uh, to try and lower the temperature in a variety of ways. It begins uh, movement towards uh, serious arms control uh, discussions, development of the U.S.-Soviet hotline, um, the joint uh, negotiation of the non-proliferation treaty. So there's this moment, it's very scary, and that actually causes uh, them to sort of take real steps to try and ratchet back the competition in certain ways. Now, you could imagine that if there's a serious confrontation between the United States and China, say over Taiwan uh, or whatever, um, that the, and, and that got resolved, uh, that that might also be a moment where each side would say, OK, we can't we can't let this get out of control. Um, if, in fact, the world is heading into a global recession, uh, which I think is reasonably likely, though I am not an e economist, that is also a moment where leaders have to say, you know, I, I'm engaged in a great power competition here, but I also have to you retain political support uh, here at home. I want to provide for the citizens uh, as well. And therefore, we have to lower the temperature and do do things that may not be um, that that are more conducive to the kind of joint economic gains we can make if we uh, if we cooperate. Uh, you suddenly get more pressure from American business interests saying, you know, I understand your concerns about Chinese technological development, but you realize you're destroying my business uh, by by what you're what you're doing here as well. And it, it's moments like that that I think the framework that uh, Donnie and I lay out suddenly become a template, uh, a way of thinking about the problem. And just to articulate it, we, we basically said that you the Two states, in theory, could agree to uh, use what we call a meta regime, call it a framework, whatever. We say, look, we're going to try and group issues into one of three categories, uh, actions that we agree we won't do. They're just prohibited. We both agree we're not going to do that. Uh, places where we're going to mutually adjust, where compromise is possible. I'll adjust, I'll change what I'm doing, but only if you change some of the things you're doing, and that could leave us both better off. And then finally, areas where we can't reach a mutual agreement, but and we're each gonna act independently, but hopefully within some guardrails, uh, as I said, uh, calibrated responses rather than escalatory responses. And the idea is propose the framework without saying in advance what issues go where. 
without committing to which issues you're going to put in which box, and without saying how they get resolved, regardless of which box they're in. But use this as a way of structuring it. Go to the Chinese and say, what, would you, what, what do you think we should agree not to do? Right Now, we point out that there are lots of things countries have agreed not to do by signing the UN Charter. That's a set of principles considered the bedrock of international law, and we've signed that, and so have the Chinese. So you've got some place to start that conversation. Uh, and the idea is the, this structures a conversation, a diplomatic engagement with the other side, where you're not necessarily... Um, uh, you don't necessarily know whether or not you're going to be able to reach a mutual agreement at a particular moment, but let's try. We think we might be able to work something out on, say, high technology uh, production or on trade restrictions. What if we do the following? Would you be willing to make this adjustment? Maybe it'll fail, maybe not. Uh, but in the process of negotiation, each side starts to learn where the other's red lines are. Each gets to hear the rationales that the other gives for the policies that it's following. And each begins to understand that the other side is, in fact, trying to work things out. Or in some cases, you eventually conclude on this issue, there's just, they're not going to budge right, for, for various reasons. And we think this is a better way of trying to shape the overall relationship than, you know, just announcing punitive actions, making bellicose speeches, um, and, you know, ratcheting up a sense of confrontation, not all of which is going to be productive. Stephen Walt, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure talking to you.